Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this is a continuation of the miniseries, 100 Years of Fascism, in which every week I chronicle one decade in the history of fascism from its foundation in the 1920s to the present day in the 2020s. This week, I am talking about the 1940s, which is a time of extremes. Uh, This is a time when fascist movements were both the most powerful that they ever were, holding state power in two major world powers, Italy and Germany, and also several others, um, such as Romania, Spain, and Hungary. And it's also at the end of the decade when fascist movements were their most weak after the defeat of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in World War II. Now, parts of those things are a story that you might have heard before if you uh, were listening in history class back when you were younger, uh, but parts of it might not. So uh, I'm going to organize this episode thematically talking about World War II, the Holocaust, and the post-war period. World War II in Europe was begun by Germany, essentially. Uh, Germany begins the European part of the war in Poland, uh, which it invaded with the aid of the Soviet Union. It then quickly swings around and invades the Low Countries, that is uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg, uh, as well as France. Uh, Everybody expected Germany to have a a hard time invading France, because uh, this part of Europe was essentially what most of the major Western Front battles in World War I were about. Um, However, this did not happen. It was quite different. Instead of the slugfest of World War I with, you know, ground being taken and taken back one by one, year, year, year after year, uh, Germany quickly overran the armies of France and the armies that the British had um, put in the Low Countries in order to try to stop this German advance. Uh, This is the Blitzkrieg, which you might have heard of before, uh, lightning warfare. So the Nazis find themselves occupying not only most of Western Europe, but uh, shortly after this invasion of France, they go after the USSR as well. Now, this is where the Nazis start to, A, be at the the apex of their power. They essentially control Europe from the western coast of France to almost Moscow uh, at the height of their control in World War II. However, they were ill-equipped for the kind of garrisoning and control that they really needed in order to maintain this kind of control over Europe. Uh, The plan really wasn't there for this occupation. Uh, This results in a very, like, patchwork ersatz form of occupation, uh, which blended the Nazi party, the German state, and the German military. This, like, just, like, chaotic mixture of powers, uh, is what characterizes Nazi power during World War II. It is not organized. It is not logical. It's very chaotic. It's very personal. And it also relies heavily on collaborators. Uh, Collaborators are people who work with fascist organizations or fascist groups in order to advance their own interests. Sometimes they are fascists themselves. uh, Sometimes they are not. In this case, uh, both appear in the Nazi-occupied zones. Uh, One of the most famous of the collaborators with the Nazi regime is Vichy France, run by Marshal Pétain, a World War I hero of France who turns into a quasi-fascist extreme right-wing person who essentially controlled southern France for Nazi Germany. Technically, it was 
this is an independent French state, but in reality, it was um, largely a puppet of the Germans. Uh, they had some purview to do their own stuff, uh, but they were mostly an appendage of the German economy and the German state. So this is the height of Nazi power, and they just they just can't do it. Uh, the Nazis are unable to take over the Soviet Union, which continues to amass more and more power and begins to push the Nazis back on the Eastern Front. Uh, throughout most of the war, this Eastern Front, uh, the war between the Nazis and the Soviets, occupies about two-thirds of all German military personnel, uh, meaning that World War II was primarily a fight between the fascist Nazi Germany and the Stalinist Soviet Union. Um, the other Allied forces, namely the United States and the United Kingdom, invade uh, Italy through the south, uh, and they are able to very quickly uh, storm uh, the Italian capital, uh, and they capture Mussolini. They defeat Italy, right? Italy is out of the war uh, relatively quickly upon the Allied invasion of Italy in 1943. Uh, Germany is then eventually invaded by the Soviet Union uh, and retreats after retreats after retreats uh, through Eastern Europe. At this point, Mussolini is uh, actually rescued by the Germans, uh, specifically by a German commando named Otto Scorzani, uh, and has a fascist rump state in northern Italy. However, this collapses essentially at the same time that Berlin falls to the Soviets. Uh, Mussolini is captured by Italian partisans and executed April 28th, 1945, and Hitler commits suicide as the Soviets are storming Berlin on April 30th, 1945. That is the end of state power that Nazis have ever held. Uh, that is the end of fascist state power, essentially. Now, concurrently, along with their military operations, the fascists in Germany and Italy are engaging in the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the largest genocidal campaign in human history. Uh, it involves the murder of over 6 million people of Jewish descent, mostly from Eastern Europe, and approximately 6 million other people, uh, people of Polish descent, Slavic peoples, Roma, uh, people who were queer, uh, people who were opponents of the fascists for political purposes, people who had um, physical or mental conditions which the Nazis deemed to be undesirable in their more perfect state. The thing about the Holocaust, and obviously there are many, many other resources that one might look to if you want to understand the Holocaust more fully, but the thing to keep in mind here is that the Germans used a lot of wartime capacity. They used military equipment, trains, soldiers, logistics personnel in order to carry out this mass murder program instead of using it to defeat their material enemies, say the Soviet Union or the United States. This makes the Holocaust, unfortunately, particularly fascinating as a subject of the study of fascism because it reveals that um, a lot of what the Nazis were doing was motivated by ideology and not logic in a utilitarian sense, right? Um, it was motivated by a different kind of logic, one that was about civilizational conflict, one that was about violence, uh, one that was just about murder uh, and about how violence is good for a civilization uh, as well as for individuals. And that is, in many ways, the foundation of fascism, that violence produces good people and good civilizations. So they failed, uh, thank God. Uh, the rest of the world um, united 
in large part in order to defeat the Nazis and the Italians, and then turned uh, its attention to the imperial Japanese state, which was engaged in its own forms of atrocity, which um, I am not particularly covering in this episode because uh, the Japanese state was not itself uh, fascist as such. After the war, there was a campaign of denazification, and yes, this is where Vladimir Putin got the language that he used to justify his unjustifiable war in Ukraine. Denazification was a process initially intended uh, to prevent Nazis and other fascists from holding positions of power. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was supposed to be a way to keep them out of power in Germany and Italy after the war. Uh, this was very quickly abandoned by the occupying allies, essentially because it made occupying Germany and Italy too hard, because too many people had worked with the Nazis and the fascist party. It was just impossible to govern those countries with native people, with, with Germans and Italians, if you barred anybody who worked with the fascists. The exception here is the Soviet Union in their occupation and um rule over Eastern Germany before the establishment of the East German government, uh, the Soviets were relatively serious about it. Denazification in the rest of Germany, specifically what would become West Germany, was essentially over by 1946, and uh, a lot of people who participated in the Nazi government were allowed to continue to operate and remain in government. Uh, they retained small business positions, uh, they retained uh, positions in the German federal government. Uh, a lot of Nazis founded various parties, post-Nazi parties in Germany, uh, although, of course, the Nazi party itself is fully and permanently banned under the current German state. Additionally, many Nazis and other fascists, uh, including many collaborators with the Nazi regime, escaped from Europe in a system called the Rat Lines. Uh, the Rat Lines were a system of contacts and safe houses and forgers who helped Nazis and other fascists leave Germany and Italy, sometimes escaping Allied control, like, like escaping Allied prisons, uh, generally first going to Spain, which, uh, as I noted in the previous episode, was run by an ostensibly fascist party. Um, but eventually, a lot of them made it to South America, primarily uh, Argentina and Brazil, but also Paraguay and Bolivia. Uh, the rat lines were not initially organized, but were later on uh, run by a part of the Vatican hierarchy, uh, by the Catholic Church, literally. Um, so a lot of these people end up in South America or Iberia, uh, and a lot of these people are folks who were either eventually found by people who were hunting Nazis uh, in the 1950s, 60s, and 30s. Uh, for example, Adolf Eichmann discovered in Argentina and extradited back to Israel for his execution. Uh, but also there were others, such as Mengele, uh, who made it out and just lived out the rest of his life in Brazil. Now, while this was the experience of several other fascists that I mentioned, and also several you know, hundreds of others who managed to escape their potential persecution or prosecution, rather, you know, they were being persecuted. They were the people who had persecuted other people. Uh, while this was a fate that several other Nazis and other fascists shared, most of them did remain in Europe. And uh, as I noted before, most of them were fine. Most of them were able to continue on with their lives if um, they, you know, 
might have uh, not been able to talk exactly in super duper detail about the, what they had been up to in the 1930s and 1940s. So like I said, the 1940s are the high point of fascism elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, this is a time when a lot of fascist organizations are getting aid, like material and ideological aid from Nazi Germany and also fascist Italy. But it's also a low point for a lot of those organizations as the defeat of fascism and the real standard bearers of their ideology, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, um, really makes fascism unpalatable for a lot of the people who were particularly excited about it back in the 1930s and 1940s. However, there are, of course, exceptions. In Spain, the fascist party, the Falange, remains technically in charge of the country. In Portugal, the regime of uh, Salazar remains informed by fascism and some other forms of virulent right-wing ideology. Fascists remain able to be military contractors and advisors in a lot of the world, namely Latin America. Uh, largely, these are people who escaped via the rat lines, which I talked about earlier. However, in most other cases, fascism is really in the retreat. There are, of course, other fascist developments, though, outside of Europe, which has been the real focus of the last couple decades of these little mini-episodes, and I apologize for that. That's, that. that's just the nature of the beast here. Uh, this is a time when fascism was most powerful and um, most advanced in Europe. Uh, but the other advances include uh, the rise of the RSS in India, which was founded in the 1920s. Uh, and in the 1940s, a member of the RSS uh, was the person who assassinated Mohandas Gandhi, uh, the extremely popular leader of the Indian independence movement against the United Kingdom. The RSS, a sort of quasi-fascist organization that is still around to this day, uh, was temporarily banned in India as a result of the assassination, uh, but the leaders were acquitted for any of their involvement in this assassination Although the assassin uh, continues to be revered by several, well, by a lot of people in India, specifically uh, right-wing Hindu nationalist organizations. So that is the 1940s in fascism, uh, the very high and the very low. Unfortunately, from this low point, fascism would spend the remainder of the 20th century crawling back up and getting more and more powerful until it is where it is today. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share with your friends, your family, and your comrades. Please leave a review or a like on whatever it is you're listening to this on. That's how people see this thing in this uh, shitty algorithm age. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. If you want to send me some money, you can check out patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word, uh, which is also my Gmail address. You can also contact me on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right or fascism 15. Again, that's spelled out. All right. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next week with the 1950s.